Hi and welcome to the Her Forum podcast. We're a platform and community for women in law and aim to bring to you personal and professional insights from some amazing women with strong voices in the field of law. Welcome to Her Forum. Today we're in conversation with Rez Gadi. To introduce Rez briefly is a very difficult task because she's achieved so much, but I'm going to attempt the impossible, so here goes. Rez is a Kurdish New Zealander international lawyer and human rights activist. She is an LLB from Auckland School of Law and an LLM from Harvard Law School, where she was the first Kurdish person to ever graduate from. She's currently a Harvard Satter Human Rights Fellow in Kurdistan, where she's working on the prosecution of ISIS for their targeted genocidal campaign against the Yazidis. In 2017, Rez won the Young New Zealander of the Year for Outstanding Services to Human Rights. And in 2019, she was awarded the Outstanding Youth Delegate Award at the UN Youth Assembly. These are just few of her achievements among a long list of many others. I'm doubly pleased to have Rez join us and me to be able to have this conversation with Rez because for me personally, she has been a great support, um, a great source of inspiration, and of course, a very close friend, right from when we were together at AFS and ever since. Um, hi, Rez, so nice to have you. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Such a pleasure to be doing this with you. I'm so excited. Um, so should we get into a couple, a lot of questions that I have found out to ask you? Things that I've had on my mind for you and always wanted to ask you about and I think our viewership would love and benefit from as well. Should we get started? Yeah, let's get right into it. Great. Um, so prosecuting war crimes against the ISIS is incredibly important work and I would love for you to tell our viewers what that involves. What does a day in your life look like? Or what does a day in the life of a lawyer who prosecutes war crimes look like? Yeah, so, I mean, there are two parts to this, what our day looked like uh, pre-pandemic and then post-pandemic. So I'll explain a little bit about um, each of those different phases because it's been quite different for me here. Um, so in terms of the prosecution work that we're doing, we are at the very early stages of evidence gathering. Um, we're gathering evidence here on the ground, um, interviewing survivors and witnesses, and um, hopefully that will help us build a case um, that will then be used for prosecution. But as we know, you know, lawyers in um, litigation know that these cases take a long time. Um, people have expectations that you know perhaps will gather the evidence and they'll see themselves in court in a few months but that's just not the reality we're probably going to be gathering um, evidence for at least a year if not more and then building cases and then hopefully in a few years um, you know wishful thinking that it'll get to courts uh, in American jurisdiction or here in um, the Kurdistan Regional Government or Iraq. And those are a couple of things that I'll touch on again later um, because it's complicated whether those will ever be heard before um, the courts here locally. But that is the aim. And um, gathering evidence, I mean, we've, we're working with lots of different organizations um, on the ground, gathering evidence. There's UNITAD, the UN investigative body for um, Daesh, that was set up in the last couple of years, who are digging up mass graves um, and doing that kind of work. And we're linking up with them so that we don't interview the same people twice. We're sharing our um, resources and information to collaborate on this um, accountability project. Um, so you know, gathering evidence, the, the most important part is statements from witnesses and survivors themselves. And that's what we were doing before the pandemic. That was the bulk of our work. Um, the way from a lot of documentation done um, by others and also the media has been all over this um, interviewing survivors but the difference between this project and those human rights documentations is we have a very great idea about what happened um, in terms of the crimes that were committed I think um, you know, we have a very clear picture of exactly what's happened and uh, the woman what they've been through the sexual enslavement um, being held in these different places held captive um, seeing members of their family being killed in front of their eyes you know executed and then um, a lot of people disappearing so we're aware about the crimes but what was missing previously with 
work that's done by human rights organizations doing documentation was the link to the perpetrators and that's where we are um, our project is different and that's where we're focusing because the aim is not just to document what's happened although that's very important but actually to be able to hold perpetrators and um uh, ISIS members, individual members, accountable for what they've committed against the Yazidi population and others um, within Iraq and Syria. Um, and post-pandemic, obviously, around the world, this has been a difficult time for us all. And where I am, we went into some very strict lockdown measures where we weren't able to leave um, the house unless it was for emergency or buying essentials. Um, so we couldn't continue the interviewing work that we were doing previously. And so that meant we had to think about um, how could how could we use this time wisely? Um, we considered doing online interviews, but for confidentiality, privacy, and a number of different really important considerations, we decided that that wouldn't be the um, best approach. So we've been doing open source investigation, trying to really find out everything there is to know about certain locations. Um, you know, Sinjar was where the Yazidi population was attacked, um, and because of uh, really important figures like Nadia Murad, we have a lot of information out there about what happened to her village, Kocho, but perhaps, you know, the villages surrounding her, there's been no information um, published or released anywhere about them. So we're trying to build, you know, a very good picture of what's been happening um, around, you know, the villages that haven't, haven't been documented. So. Yeah, th those are the two phases currently, the pre and post pandemic um, work that we've been doing. Yeah, I think there's like a normal and a new normal and people say the new normal is actually going to be the way forward for quite some time. But again, there's like this whole uncertainty. So I can relate to that. Um, that that's, that's very interesting. Thank you for giving us that sort of profile on, on what you do on an everyday basis. Um, I think one question that I really wanted to ask you is that as a lawyer, I personally face this myself and I'm sure a lot of people do, is that we can't compartmentalize very well and so we often end up taking work home. And in my situation, that, that's different, but in your situation, your stakes are a lot higher and I'm imagining the emotional toll of your work is far greater than someone doing commercial work. So I feel for you, um, you know, that compartmentalization must be even more important uh, also to keep yeah. yourself going really like for a long period of time. So I'm interested to know how do you do that? How do you compartmentalize? And also, I mean, I know you fairly well and I know that you do enjoy winding down. You do enjoy spending a day at the beach and I know you enjoy food and everything else. So how do you sort of compartmentalize? How do you leave work at work? Yeah, and you raise a really important question because the kind of work that we do as lawyers generally is very stressful work, um, takes a lot of time, and uh, it is very difficult to leave it at work because, you know, there's um, not really this distinction between when you're at work, when you're at home, and especially now that we're working in these strange times, working remotely, it's even harder to... Um, you know, decide when is work time, when is home time, when is me time, and it all is kind of muddled up. Um, in this work that I'm doing, from the start, my supervisors and team have been really focusing on our mental health and um, ensuring that we don't suffer secondary trauma, because that is a major concern in this field of work and is super common. Um, and they were particularly worried about me because... Um, I didn't have the same, uh, you know, I guess, I didn't have the same uh, wall in between me and the witnesses and the survivors because I speak their language. So with my colleagues, they will, um, you know, speak in English um, and then have the translator translated into Kurdish and then the, um, the survivor will share her story or her answer in Kurdish and then it's translated again. So there's this like pause is broken up um, it's not directly heard from um, the survivor straight to the interviewer. But in my case, um, I was understanding what they were saying straight from what they, um, from their mouth. And so it was um, more direct, more personal. And so they were more worried about that. And also more worried because of my family's history. Um, obviously, I got into this work because I'm passionate about the Kurdish people's struggle and I've had family um, suffer at, at the hands of the um, 
Saddam's dictatorship and a genocide under his regime. And so a lot of these things that I'm hearing through the interviews are quite personal. And I've heard through my family members and our history and our stories um, share similar experiences. And so it's even more personal and difficult in that regard. But I think what's always worked for me is, um, is taking time to do things that I enjoy. And it sounds so cliche, but it's absolutely true. Um, and you know, we've, we've had great memories together, going to the beach, going for a walk, going out to dinner, um, going for a coffee, and you know, just spending time talking about non-work things. And I think that is absolutely crucial in this kind of work, in any kind of work that's uh, legal, lawyer um, work. You just need to have a supportive um, group of friends and family who can take your mind off things and who you can go to when things get really tough and just break free from the work you're doing, not think about it for a moment of time and just do other things. Um, hiking, I, I love hiking. I love, um, I can't do it here because they don't even know what it means. They don't know what it means in the US, but netball, it's a sport that's a very similar to basketball, but played um, mainly in the Commonwealth countries. And so these are the kind of things that I would usually do um, for stress release but of course now that we're all working remotely and at home um, it is much more difficult and I do find myself um, facing these challenges perhaps being less productive or um, not being able to separate the work from from me time anymore so it's a, it's a struggle but I think it's similar for people around the world right now absolutely um, I also think just the fact that we work and live in the same place which very often for a lot of us is just our bedroom. That also like sort of makes it harder to, to end your day at the time when your work ends because it just sort of carries on. Um, but thank you, that, that was super helpful in helping me understand at least how compartmentalization can be done. Um, for my next question, I kind of want to like piggyback on your answer a little bit, the, the history you spoke about of your family. Um, so you were the first Kurdish person ever to graduate from HLS. Um, and that's an achievement I'm personally very proud of, of you. And I think that I would really want to know, and I, I'm sure all the readers, all our viewers would like to know about your story um, from being born in a refugee camp to eventually graduating from US, your struggles, your challenges, anything that you want to share, um, any way that you feel helped you get through those struggles and challenges. And most importantly, if you could tell us a little bit how you continue believing in yourself, because I think all of us struggle a lot with self-belief. Very often I feel that, and I think this, this happens to both of us also, and we've spoken about it before, that to continue believing in yourself is very tough. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about that, about your story, about how you continue to have belief and how, um, how HLS was in that sense a dream come true for you. Yeah, so you've mentioned I was born in a refugee camp and um, I kind of touched on this, my family's history um, as Kurds at the hands of um, Saddam Hussein's regime. So my, my family had to flee Saddam Hussein's genocidal campaign against the Kurds. Um, my grandparents, uh, my mom's side, uh, her mom was killed and her dad was injured as a result, um, disabled, and her two younger siblings were killed in that attack. Um, it was a chemical attack. And so they fled into Iran. And my dad's family is originally from the Kurdish region of Turkey, which is um, right now also a very timely issue with the um, Kurdish region of Iraq being invaded by Turkey and also the Kurdish region of Syria being invaded by Turkey. And so they fled at a time when it was, um, not that it's much better, but when it was uh, even worse, you couldn't even identify as Kurdish, you couldn't even speak Kurdish. Um, you could be killed for even having a Kurdish name. Um, and that's the time that my parents' family fled to the Kurdish region of Iraq, thinking that it would be a safer place to settle, not knowing that within a few years, um, Saddam Hussein was going to carry out a genocidal campaign against the Kurds, and they'd find themselves in an even worse situation. Um, so they then also uh, traveled to Iran illegally um, as refugees and uh, remained there for some years. Um, both my parents were very active um, in human rights issues and the Kurdish issues, fighting for Kurdish independence, fighting for Kurdish rights to be recognized. And they were part of this uh, Kurdish human rights movement in Iran. And that's how they met as teenagers in this movement. Um, but eventually, you know, and I'm, I'm telling a very brief story 
um, because of the interests of time. But they rights activists in Iran uh, were forced to flee because of the crackdown that the Iranian government um, had on uh, activists. So it was dangerous enough uh, being Kurdish, identifying as Kurdish, and then on top of that, um, being an activist and demanding better rights for Kurdish people. So they, you know, they were really in the situation where they um, had to either risk their lives and remain, not knowing what would happen and whether they would be arrested or disappear like their fellow activists were, um, or just flee. So they fled in the middle of the night without telling anyone, crossed the border illegally into Pakistan, and they sought asylum. Um, and it was in Pakistan that we were granted refugee status because of the dangerous situation that my parents were in as human rights activists. And they were told that it would be six months before they were resettled. Um, Unfortunately, it wasn't six months. It wasn't even close. They arrived in 1989 and we left in 1998. Um, and that's where I was born in Pakistan. I spent um, the first seven years of my life in a refugee camp there um, before being resettled to New Zealand. And when we arrived in New Zealand, um, you know, that's a whole different story. It was good and bad experiences. But um, at the time, New Zealand wasn't as multicultural as it is now. So we were very obviously different when we arrived in New Zealand um, and suffered a lot of racism um, due to being Middle Eastern uh, from you know this Muslim side of the world and especially after 9-11 we suffered a lot of repercussions and consequences uh, due to the way that we looked. Um, so without getting in too much into that I, I just some of the challenges that I faced was um, you know refugees all around the world uh, suffer in terms of lack of education, lack of employment opportunities, um, and that's just a given. And that was a situation we experienced in Pakistan too. We didn't have access to schools in the beginning um, until we demanded um, them. And, you know, it took a long time. My, my dad was imprisoned for 12 months for, um, active, for his activism again in Pakistan. So it wasn't, you know, something that happened overnight, but eventually we had access to schools. Um, and then in New Zealand, we're entering a whole different world. Um, by this point, English would have been my fourth language, fourth different alphabet, um, and I was only seven years old, and I didn't fit in at school. I was bullied, I was harassed for looking different, for um, speaking differently, all these kind of things. Um, the discrimination was you know, tremendous, but I just kept fighting for it kept fighting to learn English, to fit in with my friends. And I did go through a period where I uh, basically blocked out my entire Kurdish identity to try fit in into New Zealand culture. And you know, as a young child, it was very difficult for me to understand why I couldn't see Kurdistan on a map, why I couldn't see the flag of Kurdistan, you know, at, uh, at international events and how to explain to my friends where I was from, because it was hard enough for me to understand why we were stateless and why our neighbor, neighboring countries hated us so much. So even more difficult to try, um, you know, tell my fr uh, friend's parents or my teachers where I was from. So I decided the easiest way was to just pretend I wasn't Kurdish and to just try fit into Kurdish, uh, New Zealand culture. Um, the, you know, stats, although we're in a place like New Zealand, a Western country where, where there's so many opportunities, the stats for refugees are still, you know, awful. They're appalling. The number of refugee background students that finish high school and um, let alone go to university is just astounding. Uh, a lot of young people from refugee backgrounds tend to drop out of school at the age of like 15 and for a number of different reasons, you know, I, I don't want to just say that it's one reason or another, but there's a whole number of reasons. One, it may be that their parents don't speak English and because you're younger, you pick up the language faster. And so you have pressure to start working and provide for the family. Um, another is lack of support and motivation. Um, and that is something that was very personal for me. I remember in high school, I was quite a bright student. I achieved very, um, uh, you know, good grades and I went to about you know the options for me to go to university I told her I wanted to go to law school and she asked some questions um you know what have your parents studied and my parents hadn't even finished school let alone gone to university they dropped out of school because of the war that was going on and my mum became the head of her family at the age of 10 after losing her mum so school was not a priority for her when survival was on the line 
Um, similarly with my dad dropping out of school when he was a Peshmerga Kurdish fighter um, during his teenage years. And then my brother and sister, my brother suffered um, pretty bad uh, mental health issues when he arrived in New Zealand, probably because of the age and the trauma that he'd been through and just um, his coping mechanism was different. And so school was not really uh, that easy for him. Um, he struggled a lot. Um, he was incredibly smart, but just in terms of his mental health state was not able to um, complete school. And then my sister dropped out of school to help my parents work because none of them could speak English and um, find appropriate employment. And so I was telling this to this careers advisor and she just looked at me and was, was kind of saying, um, you know, without saying anything, just kind of shaking her head. And, and I realized you know, she's not going to give me a good answer right now. And what she said to me was that law school wasn't, um, law school wasn't really feasible or appropriate or achievable for someone like me. And what she meant was someone with no history of education in the family, um, someone who was from a refugee background. Um, and she just told me it wasn't really realistic and that I should consider other options. And so it's things like this that young refugees are told, especially young refugee women, that their dreams are unrealistic and that they should consider uh, more realistic options. Fortunately for me, I had a good supportive network. I had some good teachers. I had my mom um, and who were telling me, don't worry about what she said. You don't know if you're going to get into law school unless you try. If you don't get into law school, let's have this conversation then. Let's not have it before you've tried. And so I did go off and, and um, enroll in law school. And as we know, you know, I obviously did finish law school, despite what she said. And then Harvard Law School was something, again, that was a similar experience for me. I had never really considered going to an institution like Harvard because, you know, people like me didn't even finish school, let alone attend the best institutions in the world. And so it, was, it wasn't something that I was considering as possible. I'd always loved the idea of it, and I'm sure many of us around the world would have, you know, come across Harvard in books and in movies and, and gone some sort of infatuation with the place. Um, and for me, it was similar, but it was never something like oh, I'm going to work towards this goal because it's possible for me that never crossed my mind it wasn't um and it wasn't just me it was also people around me because I remember having this conversation with some of my law school friends and they kind of would just laugh at the idea that oh you want you want to go to Harvard you know it just seemed funny to them because um, one, it wasn't that common for people in New Zealand to even go abroad and study at these kind of institutions. Um, I didn't know anyone personally at the time, um, but also because they knew my background and all these kind of things, I'm assuming, because why else would they find it so ridiculous that I would want to go there? Um, so the reason I think I just kept pushing and kept fighting is when people tell me you can't achieve something, I just think why, you know? Why is it that because of my background or where we're born or the language we speak or the identity we're from, why does that mean that these doors are closed for us? You know, who decides that? And why does it have to keep being that way? Who's going to be the person that changes it for the next generation? Unless we try, you know, nothing's going to change. Um, and so for me, going to Harvard was not just about um, a personal dream. Obviously, it's very personal as well. But it was about breaking these barriers, just crushing these barriers that existed for people like me from a refugee background, for people from marginalized minority groups around the world, for people like my Kurdish people who are stateless, for people to stop telling us that our dreams were unrealistic. And that's what it represented to me. And that's what I think that just keeps me going, is knowing that there are people all around the world who would just dream to have these kind of opportunities and we need to fight for them. We need to have them. That's amazing. And also, I mean, I think it's an important plug in here to say that you also went to Harvard as a Fulbright scholar, which is an incredibly big honor as well. So I think it's just amazing to hear like your story and how you sort of believed in yourself and obviously it attained fruition, right? Because you've since then, and even like from before you've been doing incredible work, um, do you at this point want to maybe talk about a little bit of the work you're doing for refugees? Because you also have your own NGO, which is, again, uh, doubly impressive, as is usual. So do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that as well? 
Yeah, and so um, my NGO is related exactly to what I've been talking about, about these opportunities that are um, so difficult for refugee background um, youth to attain. Um, globally, only 1% of refugees make it to higher education. Um, and, you know, that's appalling considering the number of refugees that exist in the world. This year, there are over 70 million refugees around the world. And so 1% of refugees is literally nothing. Um, so I set up this organization with um, that in mind, with my sister's story in mind, with my brother's story in mind, with my family in Kurdistan who dream of accessing, you know, um, higher education, but who sometimes just don't have the ability, don't have the opportunities. I had the people in mind who I'd met across the world living in refugee camps, um, you know, from Kenya to Uganda to Jordan to um, Myanmar and Thailand, all these different young refugees that I've met that inspired me. And I just thought things need to be better for us. And maybe we can't change it all at once, but we could do one small thing to, to help other young people achieve their dreams. And so I set up Empower with that goal in mind that we would educate, enable and empower young refugees to pursue their dreams. And the way we do that is through a mentoring program. Um, I think the power of mentoring is really underestimated. Um, it's so important to have a uh, mentor in your life who can guide you, who can help you make decisions, who you can talk through um, your options with, and also who connects you with opportunities. Because there are so many things that I would have never achieved if someone hadn't told me, hey, there's this opportunity, maybe you should apply for it. I wouldn't have even known about them. And so me telling you know, one young person, hey, you should apply for this, could change completely the next course of their um, career and the opportunities that they come across. And so the power of mentoring, to have someone uh, as a role model in your life who believes in you and who pushes you to be better is, is um, I think, pivotal. And then also workshops. There are a lot of, um, uh, we run workshops because there are a lot of subjects or skills that aren't taught in schools because they're just assumed. You know, there are people with a lot of social capital that don't need to learn these things at school because they have their parents who will teach them this or help them with that, like CVs, building CVs, uh, writing an application letter, applying for university, applying for scholarships, networking skills, leadership skills, um, Financial skills, you know, these are things that uh, you never learn in school. They're just taken for granted and people with um, You know who are in privileged environments learn those things from either their family or friends or you know their own networks But people who don't have those networks miss out completely and so we provide workshops to improve um, those skills for refugee background students um, we started in New Zealand and that's been you know the headquarters for us but through um, the work that I've been doing, I've uh, set up workshops all around the Asia Pacific region. Uh, we've done workshops in Malaysia and Thailand and Singapore and in Indonesia. We've run workshops um, uh, in refugee camps here in Kurdistan and we're now partnering with universities in Kurdistan so that we can um, not only have the workshops but then have the scholarships for them to go to universities here as well. Um, and we're also running workshops um, in Uganda and Kenya and partnering with uh, local refugee-led organizations um, and young leaders there to run workshops and run mentoring programs. So we're hoping to be global at um, some point because I think this model is able to be replicated all around the world with success um, and can make a big difference in, in young people's lives. Wow, that, that's amazing. Um, so now I wanted to kind of talk to you about a pre-Harvard phase. Uh, and, and when you told me, I was very surprised to know of this, that you used to be a corporate litigation lawyer before you uh, went to HBS. And then, of course, um, you changed gears. Not that you weren't doing um, human rights activist work anyway, and not that you weren't contributing, but it was in a more different context um, than you now are. And so how is changing gears for you? I mean, was it always something on the cards? Was the LLM sort of a tool to do that? And did you feel any sort of inertia? Because I feel there's so many people I speak to who want to sort of switch fields. I see people in corporate law who want to switch to litigation, even something as basic as that. Um, and they always feel like the sense of inertia, the sort of fear. So how did you deal with all of that? And was this like a plan of action set in advance? Or was it something sort of more spontaneous in that sense? Mm -hmm. 
Well, okay, so the reason I went to law school was always related to um, my identity as a Kurd and the Kurdish people's um, experiences of genocide and persecution. So I always wanted to go to law school with a you know, dream to contribute to the Kurdish cause. So I knew that I was never going to be a corporate lawyer for life. Um, the reason I got into corporate law in the first place, you know, co uh, working at a big firm in New Zealand, was because in New Zealand, our um, law school was very corporate oriented and human rights opportunities were very scarce and I didn't know how to get into them. Um, and I did a human rights internship with the United Nations um, in Nairobi, Kenya at the African headquarters there. And my supervisor told me, uh, you know, my plan was to go straight back into that kind of work and work for the UN um, after my internship. Um, but my supervisor there advised me um, that I should go build myself up um, as a lawyer in my home country before uh, planning on, you know, any kind of um, progression into the United Nations, you know, system. And the reason she said that was because, um, as we know, it's an incredibly bureaucratic institution and there are so many layers and levels and different uh, agencies within the United Nations, you know, system. Um, and she said that she was worried that someone like me, you know, these are her words, someone like me with potential and great skills to contribute may be lost in the system and not get to the level where I could be making the most impact simply because it's so bureaucratic and you'd have to go through so many steps to get to a position where you actually have influence. And so she said that she'd hate for me to be, you know, working my way up slowly over years to maybe never get to a position where they would see what I have to contribute. And I remember when she said that to me, I thought, this is crazy, you know, I've always wanted to work for the United Nations and you're telling me to go home and not work for the United Nations. But I, I gave it a lot of thought and I decided to go ahead and work at a firm in New Zealand. Um, and also to, to build skills because a, a place like the UN, you're just thrown in, into um, the deep end and you just have to figure it out and do it yourself. But um, at a firm with a lot of resources and you know supervisors and this mentoring system, um, that we had a buddy system, you're really, really taught um, each step of the way you're guided. And so that approach seemed better um, to me. I wanted to learn from people who had experience, who were experts in their field. I didn't just want to learn from being thrown in the deep end. And I don't regret, regret that decision at all because I had a great experience working um, um, in corporate litigation. I learned so much. And I think that my skills are... Um, better and I'm more effective at the work that I do now because of that background. Um, we know that in corporate law, you know, and you will have that experience in a litigation environment, um, time is literally money. So you have to be super effective. Um, you don't have time to muck around, to talk about, you know, things for hours um, just to, you know, then have another meeting about it. And so I, I think what it really taught me was how to be super effective, how to use my time wisely and how to get the work done under um, really stressful conditions. And those have been skills that I am absolutely needing right now. So yeah, I mean, to answer your question, it was always a plan, but I didn't know when. Um, and I was really worried and I was really scared um, about that move. So Harvard was a, I guess a, a path where I thought, you know, if I go to Harvard, I specialize in human rights and international law because we didn't have that at Auckland Law School either. I took every course there was in international law and human rights and it was um, very few. So I couldn't say that I specialized in it um, uh, with confidence because I hadn't. So going to Harvard was a way for me to also specialize in those um, specific areas of law and then to get an opportunity through that. Uh, and it was tough because you remember, you were there with me. Um, there were many opportunities coming my way. There were also um, you know, big corporate law jobs and, and there were a lot of people around me going for those jobs. And I did have a moment where I thought maybe I should go back into corporate litigation for a little bit longer and um, then decide to make the move because it's just such an unpredictable world with human rights work. Um, that's the reality. You don't know where you're going to be. You don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know what your pay is going to be like. So there's lots of different things that can really intimidate um, and scare people off.
I'm really glad I made that decision in the end to change gears and go into human rights work um, because being in this kind of work is such a reminder of you know why I went, went to law school in the first place and that this is where I want to be. Um, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed corporate litigation and we've had lots of these discussions, you and I, and I've told you about like I could see myself doing that work and enjoying it and just um, being okay. But the the feeling that I have now, now that I'm in this work, is so different to the feeling that I had when I was in uh, corporate litigation. And I now know that this is exactly where I want to be and this is the work that I want to be doing. Um, so yeah, for, for, for people that want to change gears um, and go into, whether it's a different area within the same area of law, but just slightly different, or whether they want to go into a completely different area of law, I think, um, while we're young and uh, we can take these kind of risks is the time to do it because when you've been in um, an area of law for a long time, it's not to say it's impossible, but you may find more excuses for yourself not um, just be brave and do it. That's, that's really, useful, really useful information, I think. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people can benefit from that. I also feel that ever since you have go on to doing work that, you know, I always knew that you wanted to do. I genuinely feel that when we chat, I really feel like you've come alive doing it. Um, and I, I think that's what you were also saying, that you feel truly happy doing what you do. Um, sort of coming to that, doing what you do now, I remember when we used to talk about your changing gears into human rights, um, there were like a lot of avenues that were available to you. As obviously someone who's achieved that much, you had like pretty much a massive plate of jobs open for you, um, including in policy, in organizational, and all of this is within human rights, but I feel even within human rights, there's so many fields, just like I mentioned, policy, organization, activism, um, or maybe even like working with a massive organization like the UN in some capacity. And I remember you um, had a very direct focus on war crime litigation. And so how did you sort of decide that that was how you were going to enter human rights or that was how you were going to maximize your impact potential and what was like your decision making process? Um, so yeah, a number of different factors that come into that. I um, really enjoyed the advocacy part of law school um, and you know, you and I both shared that common interest. Um, loving the mooting, the submissions, the drafting of court documents, um, and that side of things. And the, from my experience from corporate litigation, I really enjoyed, you know, that aspect of it, drafting affidavits, speaking to clients and getting their statements and, you know, drafting a document for them. I really enjoyed that phase of things. And I, as a junior um, litigator, I didn't get to argue cases before um, courts in New Zealand, but I was there and I, um, you know, enjoyed that process. Um, and then when I went into the, so after leaving corporate law, I went into New Zealand, to the New Zealand Human Rights Commission. And the New Zealand Human Rights Commission is a very interesting place because they have the mandate under our New Zealand Human Rights Act to intervene on cases. So they can pursue, um, you know, human rights litigation cases, um, but they also have a very policy oriented um, workflow as well. So uh, when there are submissions before parliaments about a new bill or, um, they have comments about an existing bill that needs to be more human rights compliant, and they make uh, sorry they make uh, submissions to Parliament and um, to select committees about those things. Um, so that's very policy oriented, or writing reports to um, UN bodies. So that aspect too, we are the um, you know the New Zealand Human Rights Commission is the main body for. Uh, basically monitoring human rights progress in New Zealand and checking on other government agencies about their human rights compliance. And so we would be the body that drafts reports to the different UN treaty bodies and report about New Zealand's um, human rights situation and make recommendations. And so within the Human Rights um, Commission, I have the opportunity to do litigation, to do the UN treaty kind of work, and to do policy kind of work. So I got a little bit of um, insight into the different parts that I enjoy. And that's where I realized that the litigation part is what I really enjoy. I 
I really like um, the advocacy in terms of being in front of a court. And like I said, because of being so junior, I didn't get to personally argue cases, but even being part of that progress and drafting the documents and doing the research and building the cases that goes to court, that was exciting for me. And when it went to the policy aspect, I found myself a little bit frustrated because um, policy work takes a lot of time and it's not necessarily, um, you're not going to see direct change uh, or impact immediately. It takes some time, laws take a while to change. And although we were very lucky that in New Zealand there were some policy uh, matters that we con commented on and contributed to and we did see um, legal change, you know, legis legislative change, it's still quite a slow process. And I found myself a bit um, frustrated by that process when we would be talking about, um, for example, one of the projects that I worked on after Harvard before coming here was a project looking into the Christchurch mosque shootings that happened in, uh, in New Zealand um, and looking at social cohesion and how to apply human rights framework so that New Zealand can move forward as a nation and address the issues of racism and discrimination that we have. But, you know, these are really important issues. But when you break it down and you're talking about things like social cohesion and a human rights framework and applying it to people's everyday lives, you just kind of think to yourself, like, what does it even mean? Like, what does this mean right now for someone who has been affected by these issues personally? And I, I couldn't answer that in my head because it, for me, it just takes such a long time before you get to the point in time where you see actual change. And um, so it wasn't for me. And that helped me make a lot of the um, decisions that I was making. And you were very helpful in um, talking through them with me. Um, so that's why I decided, uh, court work, you know, litigation, not maybe, not necessarily litigation, because as we know, maybe prosecution in a criminal, um, international criminal court is very different to a domestic court, and then it's obviously very different to pursuing human rights um, cases in a New Zealand court under our Human Rights Act, which is technically still civil litigation. Um, so they're very different aspects of doing court work, but that's why I say the umbrella court advocacy, because it's still um, that the same kind of skills that you use regardless of which aspects of court work you're doing. Um, and that's what really drew, drew me in. Um, and the reason for war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, again, still comes back to my background because I felt like we as a Kurdish people never saw justice for the genocide that we suffered under Saddam Hussein's regime. That process was entirely flawed. Um, you know, there was a tribunal set up in Iraq but Saddam Hussein was executed before he even faced um, faced trial for what he did to the Kurdish population. And so to this day, the Kurds feel like they never saw justice for losing, you know, millions of Kurdish people um, with under a chemical attack, under this, the eight stages of the genocidal campaign that he um, initiated. And so that's what keeps drawing, drawing me back to this area of international law, because I want groups who have suffered genocide and war crimes to see justice. And it's a complicated process, but um, we'll see what happens with this case that I'm working on. That's amazing, Theo. And, and I, I remember us discussing advocacy, and I always thought that you belonged best in that arena somehow, because I feel like your ability to articulate, as I'm sure people can see even through this interview, is is, is amazing and so I'm, I'm glad that that's what you're doing right now and that's how you're contributing. Now for some slightly light and like more fun questions, sort of like a rapid fire. So I'll ask you the question and then you can answer and then I'll ask you the next question. Um, I would love to know your top three women who inspire you. Okay, um, one, of, one of them is Leila Zana. So she is, um, she's Kurdish. She was the first uh, Kurdish member of parliament in Turkey. Um, at her, you know, opening speech in parliament, she spoke in Kurdish and she was arrested um, for 14 years for that. So she basically she was voted in, didn't really get to be a member of parliament because she was arrested for speaking Kurdish, but she didn't stop. She was arrested for 10 years. And then when she was released again, she went back to Kurdish activism and was arrested again. So she spent a majority of her career in prison um, as a political prisoner for um, being um, advocating for Kurdish rights in Turkey. So she's someone that I've always looked up to. She's fierce and she, um, 
it just is not scared of anything or anyone and just keeps fighting for Kurdish rights. Um, who else? Uh, Maya Angelou, I love, I love, you know, we both share this. <laughs> we both uh, love her work. So she's someone that comes to mind. And then thirdly, um, it's, oh, it's tough. Um, look, I'm going to say something. Um, sh she's very different to me and probably not someone that I will have a lot in common with in terms of career, but I grew up with Helen Clark as the prime minister of New Zealand. And so, um, she really made me think it's possible for women to be in positions of leadership. And especially at a time when she was in power, there weren't a lot of, um, female prime ministers or leaders around the world. And she was, um, you know, very, uh, She's yeah, very different style to me. She's but I just I really admired her work. She's also very fierce and just cuts straight to the point. Uh, no BS. She speaks her mind, um, and a lot of people in New Zealand didn't like her because they thought she was quite cold or um, you know not empathetic. But she just always spoke her mind, and I really respected her for that. So those are probably my three you know, three people that come to mind straight away. Um, okay, the next question is Legally Blonde or Erin Brockovich? Erin Brockovich. <laughs> but I love Legally Blonde too. It's very fun. On to the Harvard Angle. Yeah, I'd love the Harvard Angle. Okay, um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez or Hillary Clinton? Alexandra, yeah. Okay, your favorite legal movie? Um, oh, I have quite a few. I love To Kill a Mockingbird. I love 12 Angry Men. Uh, my Cousin Vinny. Um, okay, not super legal. It's also about like racism in America and um, boxing, and I love boxing. Um, but The Hurricane, a great movie. Yeah. I have to catch that one. I haven't watched The Hurricane. It's good. It's good. RBG or Elena Kagan? RBG for sure. <laughs> uh, which we met Justice Kagan. Yeah. I was just wondering if that swayed you a little bit. I mean, she was, she is um, interesting, but she's no RBG. Um, let me give some context to everyone else who's listening. Uh, we got to meet Justice Kagan, who was also a former dean of Harvard Law School, when Rez and I were both at Harvard and went on a Women's Law Association trip to Washington, D.C., part of which, one part of which was going to the Supreme Court and getting to meet um, Justice Kagan. So that was fun. Yeah. Okay, the next question is, um, one book that really inspires you? That's tough. Um... There are a lot of books that um, have inspired me, but I'm going to go with one that didn't necessarily inspire me that much, but has stayed on my mind since I read it. And that is A Little Life. And you know how long it took me to read that book. <laughs> it is a tough read. Um, so I wouldn't say it necessarily inspired me, but it had some strange effect on me that I haven't been able to forget it since I read it. And it took me like months to read because I would read it and it would just get so overwhelming and intense that I had to put it down and then a month later I'd be like I'm ready to pick it up again and it was just possibly one of the hardest reads um but yeah it just it really impacted me in a way that I can't explain okay least favorite HLS class um which one do you remember me really complaining about? I feel like I dropped a class that I was in for a while and I got special permission to drop it because I just couldn't stand it. But now I can't remember which one it was. Um, favorite HLS class to them? Favorite HLS class. Look, I, I really loved constitutional law, First Amendment with Feldman. It was like quintessential Harvard um, you know, experience. Um, I also loved Criminal Procedure with uh, Crespo. He's incredible. Um, he's a great uh, 
just great at teaching and explaining things. Um, and I loved, I loved all the human rights courses I took. I loved, um, I ended up dropping it, but I really liked the uh, class I had with Ambassador Samantha Powers, but I ended up dropping it because I was hearing less from her and too much from the class. And I, you know, Ms. Kennedy's, <laughs> Kennedy's students had a lot of opinions and I w was hoping that I would hear more from Ambassador Powers, but um, wasn't the case. But it was interesting for the first few classes that I attended. Um, yeah. Okay, the next question is, what is your hype song? What is the song that gets Resgari motivated to work? Oh, um, I have quite a few hype songs. Um, and they change a lot, but <laughs> they change often. Um, I'm going to quickly just look at my phone and see what was my most recent one. Because I feel like they change often um, and then I stick to a song. I'm like the kind of person that will get obsessed with a song and then I will like play it on repeat for like one month straight, like just this one song and then I forget about it and then move on. Sounds quite like me, doesn't it? Um, I've also been witness to that obsession, so I can speak from first-hand experience here. <laughs> yeah, literally. I have this, um, I'm just seeing what is my most recent because it changes every month. Um, okay, it seems that this month, my song, I've gone back to one that is, is an old song, but I've gone back to it. It's called Are You With Me? Lost Frequencies. So that I have played that literally 300 times in the last like week. Wow. Yeah, that's what I'm about. I've been witness to this. <laughs> so much for chatting with us and chatting so candidly, being open about all the challenges and also all the good that's come from these challenges. I think that your journey is incredibly inspiring as I've already told you multiple times before. And I'm sure that a lot of people who are going to be watching this are going to feel as inspired as you always leave me feeling. So thank you so much for being here and taking time out to do this. Um, despite whatever internet struggles you were having, uh, this has gone great. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And I can't imagine doing this interview with anyone else. Bye. And for all our listeners, I am... Um, just wanted to say thanks for tuning in. And if at any moment you're having second thoughts about something, um, I hope that you will just crush barriers and you'll chase your dreams. Thank you. That's incredible. I'm sure everyone has been inspired. Thanks for tuning in and stay tuned for more.